<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the club that you do want to join. With a voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. Nordpod, Nordpod, Nordpod. From Offscript Media, this is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to episode six of Nordpod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, Pamela Gavin, Chief Strategy Officer at Nord. This episode is part three of, you guessed it, a three-part series on telehealth. Only this time around, it's all about policy, advocacy, and how the only thing that's really ever moved the needle to make life better for patients are patients like you. COVID has forever changed how we value telehealth and telemedicine to complement the need and or desire for in-person visits with doctors. And while there are still mass market adoption challenges, will there be a snapback when the proverbial dust settles on COVID and payers decide to rethink their benefits and possibly make a big mess for all of us? Pam and I also talk about the role of everyday patients like you as citizen activists who, through the power of your own voice, can literally force payer adoptions and reverse billing and pricing structures. That's jargony. But what it really means is that the only thing that's ever fostered the change we wish to see are people like us. We can all learn how to advocate for our rare disease communities because together our voices are louder. Enjoy the show. So here we are, part three in our telehealth series with uh, Pam Gavin, the chief strategy officer here at Nord. I wanted to start the conversation by saying thank you for undertaking the insane responsibility of being a chief strategy officer. I want to dive into what that actually means so our listeners know what's going on behind the scenes at Nord. But let's start first with the very word of policy. It's three syllables. I would imagine most Americans kind of just know it exists as a word. But where does it stand in the annals of your career history and what we're doing at Nord? Matthew, it's great to be with you and talk with you about a, a topic that's really near and dear to me, telehealth, and its impact and opportunity for people living with rare conditions. I view policy as a means by which we can make improvements in the lives of people living with rare diseases and those that are caring for them. There are laws, rules, regulations that impact our daily lives. And when lawmakers um, generate laws and rules and, and um, implement them, they may have unintended consequences to people that are living with a rare condition. So it's very important from Nord's perspective to ensure that we keep an eye on that entire process so that we don't harm 
people living with rare conditions. The challenges they, that they already face are not exacerbated. In fact, through policy work, whether it be federal, state, or even regulatory work, that we make the changes that we need to to help support people living with rare conditions so that they can live their best life, um, that they have opportunity to equal access to medical care, that we ensure that we are supporting the research needed to develop treatments and cures. And laws can either support those principles, they could hamper them, hamper um, people's ability to get access to those things that they need to live their best rare life. And so it's really important that we focus on them, that those who are expert in federal and state law and regulatory affairs are available to support the rare disease community in that way. As a matter of fact, that's really how Nordcut started. It was based upon a grassroots campaign that took place over several years and the grassroots advocates representing different aspects of the community, different stakeholders, if you will, to use a business term these days, to advocate for changes in laws so that there would be financial incentives for companies that were developing drugs, treatments, therapies for people living with rare conditions, that they had the financial incentive to, co- to continue to uh, do the research and bring products to market. With small patient populations, there wasn't the economic benefit to doing so. And those organizations, those companies that actually had therapies on the market, many of them were leaving the United States or were closing those portfolios of products because closing those product lines down because it wasn't economical. They were selling small volumes and couldn't um, sustain that. So it was really the uh, starters, you know, the, the early advocates in the late 70s and early 80s that came together to say, we need change. We need to, um, we need a law we need a, that would provide the financial incentives to ensure that it was worth a company's while to to study and bring a product to market. In addition to that, like a lot of laws that get passed, there was the need to ensure not just that the financial incentives were put in place, so they would get a tax break, they would get protections, exclusivity protections to ensure that they could market their products without competition for a period of time to recoup their costs. But in addition to those incentives, we also needed to ensure that the community itself that were part of that ecosystem, that it had the resources in place. So FDA, NIH, uh, rare disease departments were established within those institutions to play their supportive role in this entire process. So um, it was really through the policy changes that needed to take place that advocates recognized that you know, a change needed to take place. We needed to create an environment that was supportive of studying rare diseases and bringing products to market for people with rare diseases. That was a stunningly wonderful response. And my takeaway is is only reaffirming what I'm to understand, that change only happens because of people. 
it's never really a, a top down in terms of recognizing something's wrong until the average citizen says, hey, not OK. They band together. And that is how the laws change to protect the people who were probably not being treated fairly by the law in the first place. It makes you question how the law got started in the first place, probably from the top. But I want to dive into that a little bit of a, a veering into the role that the Nord community has. I mean, it was started by advocates. It is based and ingrained in advocacy. Where do you engage with the communities these days with regard to the needs to continue to amend policies on behalf of the rare disease universe? So that's a good question. I, I look at that from multiple levels. There isn't one way in which we engage. There isn't one silver bullet approach because the environment is a really complex one. And I say complex because of several things. There are over 7,000 known rare diseases today. There are over 30 million people in the United States affected by those conditions. It's impossible to be an expert in all of them. And that means not only advocates and advocacy organizations like NORB, but also clinicians, people who do research on these conditions, people who develop therapies for these conditions. It's impossible to be experts in all of those areas. Further, of all the 7,000 rare diseases, many of them have common elements to them, common symptoms, but not all. They vary, and they vary in um, severity. They vary in their um, impact their uh, on people's living so the science is complicated as well. So if you think about all those complex aspects that impact advocating for rare diseases in the United States, it shouldn't be surprising to think that the way you engage is not a one-size-fits-all approach. So depending upon the stakeholder in the community, uh, where we look at advocacy at the individual level at the organizational level, at the disease state level. And then we've got these superimposed structures on our lives that require us to look at advocacy at the state level because care is provided locally. The construct of insurance and state licensure is driven by that state structure. So Pam, for the cheap seats in the back, I want to point out something fairly obvious that may not just be fairly obvious, which is that, you know, we live in a free market society and it's a capitalistic industry in the health sector. There's no financial incentives to make drugs for the seven people with this one rare thing. But Nord has really managed to change the way that industry conceives of that value in exchange for making orphan drugs. Can you talk more about how the organization has played a role in that narrative? Sure. It actually speaks to Nord's beginning. We, um, as an organization, were uh, we were incorporated in 1983, really um, at the culmination of the passing of the Orphan Drug Act by then President Ronald Reagan. Prior to that, people living with rare conditions, their their caregivers, their loved ones, advocates, clinicians, had established a grassroots movement to get the attention of lawmakers to say that that people are suffering 
And there are very little options for people living with rare conditions, very little um, treatments, therapies, little known and understood. And that perhaps if you looked at an individual disease or condition, like Tourette's syndrome, for example, or ALS, cystic fibrosis, even those more commonly known to people, none of them had an approved treatment, an FDA-approved treatment. And the incentives for companies to study and to invest in, conduct the research, bring a product to market, just wasn't there. The numbers weren't there. So the advocates got together and um, with support from members of Congress, got the Orphan Drug Act passed, which provides incentives. They take on a variety of different forms from clinical trial expense credit, tax credit, to a period of exclusivity where somebody could market the product without competition so they could try to recoup some of their costs. And that's really how it all got started through the passing of the Orphan Drug Act, or ODA as we commonly refer to it at Nord. And the advocates got together and said, now that that's passed, what do we do? Through that whole process, they made amazing connections with people back in the day through fax and phone calls and letters. And they said, we need to ensure that A, we're around to support one another, and B, we're available to ensure that this law gets implemented as intended. And that's how Nord got started. Back with our guest after the break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Pam, let's get to the meat and potatoes here on the telehealth narrative, which governs this entire conversation about policy. In the wake of COVID, we've seen this almost like this this rubber band effect of mass adoption because that's all we really had. Is there a concern or thought leadership in the notion that once COVID, I'm not going to say goes away, but once it subsides as a national emergency, There's going to be like this snapping back to the way things were and insurance isn't going to cover it and it's not going to be as accessible to people that need it. Yes, there is absolutely a concern over that because through this time of the pandemic, there have been some temporary relief of restrictions and rules and regulations that allow us to use telehealth during this time. And the easiest thing to do is just to remove those um, temporary waivers, so to speak. And the challenge, the hard work is to say, what have we learned from this process? What good can we take from it? And there's plenty of good 
as you heard um, and your readers have heard from Alice and Edgar and from Natasha and Monisha, that there is plenty of good that has occurred. And we want to ensure that we don't go back and that we move forward in a way that is smart, that is mindful of the impact of telehealth on people with rare conditions. I look at the conversation from years ago about oral parity. For those listening, that means that there were chemotherapy drugs that you had to go into the hospital for for infusion, and then they became like pills you could take at home. But the insurance companies didn't want that because it, 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 you, I don't know why they didn't want that. Perhaps you can answer that question. But the idea that you could have the convenience of not having to schlep to the hospital and spend six hours in an infusion chair when you could very easily take a pill from your house, that was a big deal. It forced patients to go cheaper and less effective instead of like real. The telehealth conversation seems to be moving in that direction. It's cheaper and easier to do this from home when it's possible. And yet, it may not be possible. They'll force you to have to go see doctors in person. That's correct. Um, we believe that patients should not be pushed to or away from telehealth by their health insurance plans or their providers. And whatever changes in the laws that are proposed um, for the future post-COVID, we are going to be looking at all of them through a series of principles which are available to people to look at on our website. And one of those is that very principle that patients and providers should be able to make a choice on the location and type of care they receive that is based on what is in the best interest of the patient. And if that is compromised by a, a change, a proposed change in the law, we will oppose it. Right. And that's where policy comes in and the advocacy voices that you need to convene. So I, I, we talked before the show about something that blew my mind. I didn't know this. And that's fine. I'm allowed to not know things. But you talked about how certain policies are structured geographically based on where you live, your zip code, your area code, your district, your county. And what may apply in the zip code where your hospital is may not apply in the zip code where you live. Let's talk about that. Sure. So there are constructs that exist that have impacted um, the adoption of telehealth that go beyond the technology itself. Telehealth as a technology has been around for a long time. Um, you talked with Dr. Schur and uh, Monisha Kissling about that. It has been predominantly restrictions in state licensure, and that is an area that we're looking at in the future. We want to make sure that those pathways are cleared so that the state licensure um, pathways are clear to enable patients to be seen by their in-state and out-of-state providers via telehealth. And that's really important for rare disease. When you think about patients often have multiple providers that they're seeing. It, they could have a primary care physician, but they also could have a physician who's an expert in their condition, their rare condition. And that person is likely not to be in their local setting, not, be, not likely to be within driving distance, and so it's, it's a challenge to be able to implement telehealth if that person is in another state and that state, state licensure doesn't allow them to see patients across state borders. So in a world without a pandemic, when most people are employed and we're based on employer-based benefits, what role do you guys play in terms of affecting employer-based benefits that get in the way of these, you know, like these laws are not very consumer friendly. This is not ever built to benefit people. It's 
built to benefit the industry. How do you play a role in in employer based care that isn't Medicaid, Medicare, Medicare extension? Like, where do you fit into that narrative? So NORD is, was actively involved in the development of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, and to ensure that provisions were put in place to support rare disease patients or that the provisions that were put in place were not harming them through some unintended consequences. And to the extent that those constructs impact what employers, um, their employer uh, benefit programs can and can't uh, do or include, that work trickles down into those programs. So for example, um, when the ACA was first passed, people were um, talking a lot about the essential benefits and what were part of the minimum, I'll say, package of care provision or the construct that, that insurance companies needed to, to support when they were developing um, plans for people to purchase. And so we, we do keep an eye on that. We consider that um, as well as viewing policies that impact federal um, and state plans like Medicare and Medicaid. So we don't discriminate. We look at it all um, when it comes to ensuring that the changes in telehealth rules are to the benefit of patients and and, um, their relationship and execution of their care in partnership with their providers. It's really, really important that we look across the spectrum. Yeah. And I I always point out anytime anyone says the Affordable Care Act, it's like from Pee Wee's Playhouse when they say the bell word and everything goes crazy. I always, always try to quantify and qualify the fact that the Affordable Care Act is Obamacare. That's a nickname for the Affordable Care Act. They are, in fact, the same thing. End of stump speech. And let's get back to our program. (laughs) I think it's really, really important for the listeners of this show to understand how they can take an active role. Not everyone is born an advocate. Not everyone just wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be an advocate and nothing bad has happened to me yet. These are all people born of their condition, literally sometimes born of their condition. And they're they're hankering, I'm going to use an old school word there, to do something to make a difference. Where can they go? What can they do? I want to get involved. I want to lobby. I want to be a voice. I want to help pass laws. What is the call to action we can give our listeners right now? Wow, we love that. Um, There are a couple of things they can do depending upon their area of interest. To start, they could... um, sign up for free to be a member of NORD's Rare Action Network. It is a national um, grassroots advocacy program that covers all 50 states. We have volunteers in in all the states. We have ambassadors who um, help coordinate activity that takes place at the state level. Um, They can also participate by signing up um, for NORD's uh, newsletter and and choose their preferences for topics that they're interested in that could be applicable across the country. And so that's one thing they can do if they have an interest in telehealth. They could sign up for um, or look at our website where we have um, information on our evaluation of um, potential bills and laws against our telehealth principles. They have an opportunity if they're interested in telehealth to Um, Look at um, the ATA, the American Telehealth Association, um, their website, um, americantelemed.org. You can follow what they're doing and and, uh, contact them if you're interested. But 
clearly we have all kinds of programs that run throughout the year uh, across the country. And depending upon somebody's interest, whether it be education, whether it be research, whether it be um, volunteering uh, for Rare Disease Day, the last day of February of every year, there's lots of opportunity. There's always much more to do than we have the resources to do. And we always welcome people um, signing up to participate in whatever capacity that suits their passion. Well, you heard it here, folks. Advocacy works, advocacy matters, and nor does your path to policy making a difference for the next you. Pamela Gavin, Chief Strategy Officer at the National Organization for Rare Diseases. Thank you so much. Concluding our three-part series on telehealth and how all of this stuff adds up when we all work together. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Karen Lee is our production manager. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org.